Welcome to Epiphany Brooklyn's podcast. I am Brandon Watts, lead pastor here at Epiph. Thanks so much for tuning in. Our desire is to join Jesus in his mission to redeem our city. May God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in each week. Amen. Y'all excited to get into the word of God today? Book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter eight today. Uh, Man, let me just say, as you guys turn there, um, it's amazing that I get to witness what God is doing through this church. Uh, It it is absolutely amazing when I consider that this room fills up three times on a Sunday and we don't have any gimmicks. We don't have any tricks. We we give away free water bottles to our first time visitors, but it's, it's not much. We don't have any bells and whistles. Uh, we, we present Jesus and Jesus alone. And I want to just applaud you uh, that come every week and that are a part of our church. I'm excited uh, to, to, to pastor you because we're a hungry church. And it's ex- I'm excited to see you guys come in every single week and you have an expectation that the word of God will be preached. You have a, and never lose that. Never lose that high expectation that we have for the word that that the word is going to be proclaimed, that Jesus is going to be preached. Never, ever lose that. It is abnormal. You don't, I mean, there's not many places you can go and see a room full of uh, young people excited about going through the book of Romans. And so I, I just want to lay that before you, my, um, I don't know, man, my gratitude for you guys for being so consistent and faithful as we work through the book of Romans. All right, let, let's jump in. We're in Romans chapter 8, verse 33. I know you'll turn me down. Can you all just give me a little bit more in the monitors? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He's going to go through the whole thing. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written. He's going to quote Psalm 44 here, verse 22. For our sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are, please underline these three words, more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, We we are continuing on something we started last week, preaching from the topic. Uh, You already know part two. Last week we I handled three of the six questions that Paul asked at the conclusion of this chapter. Today we will finish and uh, we will um, do the last three. Let's look to the Lord before we dig in. Uh, Father, would you be so kind this morning to bridge the gap between my words and your will? There could be, if we're not careful, an inconsistency between the two. So, Father, would you align me with your will? I'm not trying to pull you into my words, but Lord, let me... Only proclaim what it is that you've already proclaimed through the apostles. I'm grateful that an ancient text, an old text like this could speak to us. All of the baggage that we have, all of our different ethnicities and cultures, but the word of God transcends all of that. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God never, ever changes. It doesn't fade. 
And so, Father, I thank you, O God, that we are standing on a sure foundation, and that sure foundation is the words of Christ. So, Father, would you do something today in the hearts of your people? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You already know part two. Um, I don't know if you know this, but for 21 years straight, uh, Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport has been deemed as the busiest airport, not just domestically, in the world. Man, I read this report. I don't know if y'all know this, but and over 107 million passengers have flewed out through, that's a word, that's a word, have flewed out through, that was some shade, has flewed out through Atlanta Airport. Airport. I, I heard one person say this, and I, I think it, the quote is true. It, it said, and this might not be in your Bibles, but nevertheless, I feel like it's true. It said uh, that the Way to hell. The, once, uh, you, as you travel to hell, you have to make a layover in Atlanta on your way there. Because I don't know if you've ever been to Atlanta Airport. It is busy. It's concourse after concourse. I think Papados is in there. If y'all ever been to Papados restaurant, you need to go there. Uh, but it's concourse after concourse after concourse, and it's people, and it's flights, and it's just it's, it's massive. It is extremely busy. In fact, my wife and I. Uh, we're traveling years ago. We got stuck in Atlanta Airport for 14 hours. We watched 10 flights. We got bumped off 10 flights and just sat there and watched these flights as they left. And the reason we were stuck there for so long is because we had we had a friend that worked for Delta. And so we got a hookup on the tickets. Some, some, some things you just don't need to get a hookup on. We got something called buddy passes. Anybody know what a buddy pass is? Don't ever get a buddy pass. Because in terms of hierarchy, there, there, there's confirmed tickets, which is you purchase full price for them. And then there is standby. And underneath standby is a buddy pass. And so in other words, we came up all happy and, and we were bushy eyed and or what is it? Bushy tail, bright eyed and bushy tail. And we, we came up to the counter and we was all confident and put that little buddy pass on that daggone desk, that table. And that lady said, oh, you're not making this flight. Somebody else. Well, there was one flight we almost made. It, it was the gate was open. We were about to make it, and then somebody by standby came in, and they, they just bumped us both right off. There, there is something about having a standby ticket or a buddy pass that makes you lack peace. Have you ever seen somebody on standby? They got they on their phone. They pacing. They looking at the monitor to see if your name is moving up. They texting. They calling. There is just a lack of tranquility when you have a standby ticket. But the person that has a confirmed ticket typically is chilling. They at the gates watching Netflix. They got their earpods on. They popping gum. They chilling. And, and the reason they're able to do that is because they know that when that flight takes off. They have a secure position already on the flight in a deeper and in a greater way. That is what Paul is presenting to us today. What Paul is presenting to us is that if you trusted in Jesus, you're not on standby. But if you've trusted in Jesus, you've got a sure, confirmed ticket. And the ticket that you have is a good one. And this is how you know it's good because it's been issued by the Father, purchased by the Son, confirmed by the Holy Spirit. you got a spot in heaven. And so for the rest of our time, the three questions, which, by the way, remember I told you that all of Paul's questions are all rhetorical. He's not asking you, trying to get information from you. He's trying to give you information. And in this case, the information he's trying to give you is that your ticket is solid. 
put your earphones on, put your feet up, and go ahead and chill until Jesus comes back. And, and that's what he's pushing to us today. And so this passage before us, if it doesn't give you peace, security, and tranquility, I, I really don't know what will. Again, last week, there's six questions that Paul worked through. Last week, we did three of the six, and today we'll do the final three, all right? Look at verse 33 with me. By the way, I'm not scared of y'all, so please talk back just a little bit. All right, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Don't miss this. There's a statement tied to the question. It is God who justifies. The language that Paul is using right here. Is, is legal language. This is litigation language. What he's really painting the picture of is that we're in a courtroom. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a courtroom. I just did a deposition, none of your business why I had something going on. I had to do a little deposition. <laughs> I'm serious. And, and so I, 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 feel real, I feel real legal today. And when I, when, when I read through verse 33 and I realized that Paul is talking uh, about a courtroom, there's three things you can always expect in a courtroom, three positions that are held in high esteem. Number one is the prosecutor. There's always a prosecutor, right? And then, then there's always a defendant. And then there's always a middle person, which is the judge. In God's divine courtroom, the prosecutor is always Satan. Okay, let me put Bible there in Revelation chapter 12. I love the way it says it says Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And then it goes so far as to say he accuses us both day and night. That means constantly Satan is accusing you and pointing out the things you've done. And here's what's crazy about the accusations. Most of them are true. Oh, y'all acting deep. Most of the most of the accusations that that Satan is bringing before the judge are true. But here's where your liberty lies, that the defendant is Jesus. And if Jesus is defending us, it doesn't matter the accusation that is brought up against you. But I love how secure this case is against the enemy, because not only is Jesus our defendant, but the third person is a judge. And according to this passage and the rest of Scripture, God holds the place of being a judge. Now, here's what's dope about God being the judge, that a judge in the courtroom is the highest. Once he makes a declaration, you can take that thing to the bank. And so the text just told me, remember, the question is uh, the, the question in verse 33 was who should bring any charge against God's elect. But then it says the judge, God justifies. Think about that. God He's made a ruling. And if he makes a ruling that you're guilty, you can't be proven innocent. But the opposite is true as well. If he makes a, a ruling that you are innocent, you can never be found guilty by anybody, including Satan. So I don't know if that helps you to feel more secure, but I feel good knowing that I'm going in a courtroom where my defendant is Jesus and and the judge has already ruled the case. The case is being thrown out. The case is going to be dismissed because God is the one that justifies. God is the one that justifies. This word justifies here, uh, the Greek word for justifies literally means acquitted or vindicated. Understand what I said here. Satan, your prosecutor, is able to bring up charges against you, but because Jesus is your defendant, he's like, I died for that. And because I died for that, you can't bring that charge up against them. And so God, the judge, bangs the gavel and says, justified, vindicated, acquitted. 
You, you and I who are guilty have been found innocent if you've trusted in Jesus. Why have we been found innocent? Because Jesus Christ has already done the work for us. So can we agree that if it is God that justifies, then you can't justify yourself? I've been having so many conversations with some of you, and it's been really good conversations. But one of the things I'm noticing is that there, there's, a, there, there's a confusion between works and, and salvation by grace alone. Many people try to add to the cross, right? We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe the cross uh, is strong, but we don't believe it's strong enough. So we got to help God out and I got to behave and my behavior is what justifies me. But your behavior does not vindicate you nor justify you. Your behavior is the appropriate response showing that you've already, it, it doesn't help you out. It just shows I'm already saved. And so I strive to do well. I strive to work hard. I, I strive. I know you're like, James, what about James? James says, faith without works plus dead. I agree because if I really, because he goes on to say, I can show you my faith by my works. You want to know that I'm really saved, watch my behavior, but that's not what saved me. And so God saves, God justifies. That means your merit doesn't. That means your work doesn't. That means your good outweighing the bad doesn't save you. Do you know how many people live by this divine scale? And we think as long as I do enough good that God is going to forgive the bad, but you don't know how holy God is. God sees the bad and dismisses the good. And he, and that's the thing about God. He's not looking for good. He's looking for perfect. That that scale can't be a little off balance. It got to be perfect from the time you were born. And I don't know if you'll lie in here, but are there any perfect people in here? Okay, since we don't have one hand, if we did, we'd have stopped the service and go ahead and did an altar call real quick because you're a liar. We've all we've all messed up. We've all messed up. And so you're good outweighing your bad is not a good way to stand before God. Here's how I stand before God. I stand before God vindicated because I realize my church attendance doesn't save me. I'm talking to the churchy religious one now. That one that says, I can just get to the church. If I could just take communion, communion doesn't save you. If I could just get baptized and get in the water, it's just some cold tap water. It does not save you. Coming to church, religiosity does not save you. And I want to help you. Listen, I lived there for a long time. For a long time, I thought that I had a false sense of security because I thought I was saved because of church attendance. And as long as I showed up, God was proud of me. But the devil is a liar. That is not what saves you. What saves you is what verse 33 says. God justifies. It is by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. So all of those religious activities are they fall into place after salvation. Those things are are a response to being justified, not the initiator of the justification. You've been vindicated by God the Father. You've been acquitted. You've been set free. And so this courtroom scene that he's laying out, you know, one of the things I love about courtroom scenes is we all love a courtroom scene. Yo, yo, I, mean, yo, I was thinking this morning about uh, uh, a few good men, 1992. In fact, when I was in my deposition at, a couple months ago, I almost screamed out, you can't handle the truth because I, you know, was feeling myself. We all love a scene like that. Remember the scene with, um, with, with Johnny Cochran? And he, he was giving his closing argument. Y'all know the line, if the glove don't fit. So y'all love a courtroom scene. We love it. But one of the things I found out about verse 33 is 
the divine courtroom scene that is laid out here, Hollywood doesn't have enough money in their budget to recreate this type of courtroom. God is sitting on the throne making judges. And once he said that guilty person I find innocent, you can't do nothing about it. Your neighbor can't do nothing about it. Your friends can't do nothing about it. Your family can't do nothing about it. Satan can't do nothing about it. You've been acquitted. You've been set free. You, you, you've been decla- declared as righteous. And one of the worst situations to be in is a person that has been declared as righteous, but you walk and live as though you're still in bondage. Do you know how many of us walk through life saying, I profess faith in Jesus, but we live, it's a mental state. We've been in bondage for so long, we don't know what freedom actually feels like. Remember Harriet Tubman said that I, I could have saved more, but they knew they were slaves. Man, many of us don't even realize the mentality that we have. It's not your reality, though. If you've trusted in Jesus, vindicated, but we live as though we're still in bondage. Y'all ever seen the picture with the horse and the horse is tied to a plastic chair? Y'all ever seen that picture? Google that picture. It's a horse and he's tied to a plastic chair. And you would think that the horse would know, yo, just walk. And the chair will drag along with you. You can take the chair. With, he, he was in bondage because he's been tied up so much. And many of you, that, that is how we're living. God has vindicated you. God has set you free. He, he's, he's declared you as righteous, but we're living as though we have never been set free. And so maybe you need a couple of verses. Write these down. John eight thirty six. He who the son set free. Y'all got it. Galatians 5, 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. He set you free to be free. Stop living under. Why would we be set free, but you would choose to live in slavery? He's vindicated you. He's acquitted you. The, the, the case is dismissed. And the crazy thing is most of the charges, not most, all of the charges brought up against me are true. God is like, listen, I died for it. I'm their defendant. And so every time Satan comes up and he's like, oh, what about this? Jesus is like, that's nice. And I know that was powerful, but that's not more powerful than my cross where sin increased. Grace abounds all the more. You can't out the cross. The cross was that powerful. I don't care how big. It doesn't matter. Like there are men in the Bible that did some grievous sin. Can I promise you that David probably can out you? I mean, unless you took somebody's wife. Had the husband killed, I, I just, I mean, that, that's a grievous sin, but yet God can stand back and look at David and say, he's a man after my own heart, vindicated, justified, set free, set righteous. And so first question, hope you wrote it down. Who should bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Underline that right out in the margin somewhere, courtroom scene, case dismissed. Verse 34, second question. It says, who is to condemn four things that Christ does here? Christ is the one who died, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What I found interesting is verse 33 tells me uh, that, that I've been set free or vindicated by God. But verse 34 gives me a bit more of a Christological answer. It, it doesn't say God the Father. It says it is Christ who has died for you. Christ, the one that could and should condemn you, justifies you. He dies for you. He gets raised to new life. 
He's at the right hand of the Father, which is a position of power, and then he is interceding for you. I know your conscience may try to condemn you, but you can't be condemned. I know people may try to condemn you, but you can't be condemned. I know situations may try to condemn you, but you can't be condemned. I, I know that, 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 that one person that gets on your nerves will try to condemn you, but you can't be condemned. Let me go deeper. I know Satan will try to condemn you, but you can't be condemned. Why does Paul keep talking about this? Did y'all pick that up? He started the chapter saying there is therefore no, no condemnation. And then at the end of the chapter, it's almost like he's doing a sandwich. And he's at the end of the chapter, he's saying again the same thing. Who is to condemn? It's Christ who died for you. In, in other words, I think Paul understands that we are prone to forget that we are not condemned. We profess it out of our mouth, but we live life under condemnation. But the devil's a liar. We are not condemned. I love the song before the throne of God above. There's a line in there that says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within Upward, I look to see him there who made it into all my sin because the sinless savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. Watch this. For God, the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The father sits in heaven. And when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, if you trusted in Jesus, he looks at Jesus as though he lived like you. And he looks at you as though you live like Jesus. He said he he died. He was raised. He is in a position of power on the right hand of God. But don't miss this one. He's interceding for us. Maybe you don't have a church background. You don't know, even know what that means. He's praying for you. You want to talk about being able to chill at the gate with no worries. You chill knowing that the person on the right hand of God is praying for you. Wait a second. Right now praying for you. Not, not, not like prayed for you, but right now, God is praying for you. If you have fears in life, this is one promise that should make every fear be erased. If you actually believe that, if you actually believe that Jesus is praying for you right now, why are you afraid? Well, why are you pacing? Why are you looking at the monitor like you have a standby ticket? You are confirmed because Jesus is on the right hand going, no, 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 no. I know they messed up. I see it, but I died for it. That this is what Jesus is doing. I love the way Robert Murray McChaney said it. He has a quote. He said, if I could hear Jesus praying in the next room, I wouldn't fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Single mother, can I talk to you? I know it's been hard. I know you've been, you've been trying and been trying to make ends meet and you want daddy to be more involved and, and it's been hard, but can I calm your fears? Jesus is praying for you. My, my, my sister, I know you feel lonely. You, you feel like this is, the, see, you're tired of looking at Facebook and everybody's status change. Your status never changes. And you're like, oh, this one, I thought he was the right one and he not the right one. Can I promise you that Christ is the right one and he's praying for you? Can, 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 I, can I talk to the young man that feels like he's not moving in the right direction? His sin is holding him back and he's trying to be faithful and he's trying to pursue the Lord and he's trying to get accountability. But somewhere around three o'clock in the morning, sin starts to creep back in his mind. Christ is praying for you. Watch this at three o'clock in the morning. And so I don't I don't know what your situation is. Maybe I didn't even touch on your situation. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe you just got laid off. Don't fear. Why are you fretting? 
when Jesus is praying for you. And so I love this because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father in a position of power, and all he's doing is this is the king of kings that should be getting worship. He should be at the throne being like, angels, all y'all cast your crowns right here. Just keep worshiping me. No, no, no. He's like, wait, I got to pray for you. Write this verse down. First John uh, chapter 2, verse 1. First John chapter 2, verse 1 says this. I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. If you are falling, if you're in the midst of turmoil, if you're in the midst of sin right now, you came to the right place because I get to promise you that Jesus is actually praying for you. And proof that Jesus prays for us can be found in how he prayed when he walked the earth. You know how committed Jesus was to prayer? I mean, over and over again, read John 17 when you get home. A whole chapter of Jesus just praying for you. I mean, consider that, that when Jesus, before he raised Lazarus from the dead, he prays. When he's entering into Jerusalem, he prays. He was so dope at prayer that the disciples looked at him and said, Lord, teach us how to do that. Jesus says, our father, which art in heaven, why well, would be thy name. He teaches them how to pray. Why? Because he's perfected communication with his father, but his occupation has not changed. Our Lord and Savior is still praying right now at the right hand of the father. He is praying for you. And so the, the first question that is asked let me get back to my chapter. First question that is asked in Romans, verse 33, eight, uh, verse 33, who should bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies courtroom scene, case dismissed. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Jesus died. He, he's raised. He's at the right hand of God. And he's also interceding or praying for me. Here's the final question, which actually has the longest statement attached to it. Out of the six questions. Here it is. Verse 35. By the way, both of y'all tried to like steal my thunder. Both of y'all read Romans. I just, nah, that ain't submitting. That's, that's stealing. <laughs> All right, let's get back to it. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes down the list. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Jump down to verse 37. Knowing all these things, you are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor uh, things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all this. Almost like Paul ran out of stuff. So he's like, nothing in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Do you see the confidence? This is Paul saying, I'm at the gate and I'm not pacing. Look at the words he says in verse 38. I'm sure. I am convinced. I am confident that nothing in this world will be able to separate me from the love of God. He lists out 16 things. Most of them he dealt with. Tribulation he dealt with. Distress. Persecution. He dealt with famine. Remember I read that a couple weeks ago? He dealt with nakedness and danger. He dealt with most of it. And even still dealing with all of the stuff that Paul dealt with, he dealt with, he looks ahead and he says, nothing can separate me though. Yeah. This, is, this holds the idea, and write this doctrinal term down. I'm not trying to be too deep. I just really want you to study this this week. It's called perseverance of the saints. It, it holds the idea of the Bible's, te- it sums up the Bible's teaching on eternal security. 
It means, see, the miracle of salvation isn't, that just, isn't just that you're saved. It's that God has maintained your salvation. I need somebody to know if you could have lost it, you would have lost it already. You, you think God wait and go, oh, they're going to lose it at the end of the year. No, no, no. You would have you lost it year one, year zero. You would have, the moment you were born, you would have lost it already. The moment you snatched that toy and was selfish and said mine, you would have lost it then. But God is so gracious that he doesn't look at us and cut us off. He builds in our life a, 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 a mechanism called grace so that when you sin, you got something to fall back on. Nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God. That should build confidence. That shouldn't make you pursue a life of sin. Paul dealt with it in, in Romans 6. Remember, he says, uh, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Nah, 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 God forbid. How can we who are dead to sin live in it? And so I persevere not because I'm strong. I persevere because God is strong. See, you think that you're holding God's hand. Mm -mm. You're not strong enough. God is holding your hand. There's a story of this little boy that was walking down the street with his father. A little boy grabbed on his father's big finger, grabbed on his finger, and he's walking, and he slips, and he falls. And father picks him back up, and he dusts him off. And then the little boy grabs on his father's finger again, and then he's walking. And then once again, he stumbles, and he falls. And the third time, the father picks him up, but the father has a better idea. He said, instead of you holding my hand, I'll hold your hand. And they continued along, and the boy did not fall. Why didn't the boy fall? Because the father put his big hand and wrapped it around the young boy's hand, and he was too secure for the boy to fall in. That is what God does with you. You don't hold his hand. Perseverance of the saints has nothing to do with you persevering. It has everything to do with the might and the power of God to keep you saved. I rejoice at my salvation, but I scratch my head that I'm still saved. See, that does something to me that, that that does something to me because I know that I really should have lost. It. And so he says, listen, no depth, no height, nothing. There is no undo button on my salvation. My salvation is eternally secure. Now, now he ends here with, with a great thought. I, I'm just going to read it and then. OK, I got a, a few minutes, so we'll deal with it. Verse 37. Knowing all these things that we are. Let me just do that again. Act like y'all are really involved here. Verse 37, knowing all these things, we are. Look at your neighbor and just simply say, you're not a conqueror. You're more than a conqueror. That, that is, there's a major difference in being a conqueror and being more than a conqueror. He moves from courtroom language to battlefield language. He says that you are victorious. Not only can nothing separate you, but you are victorious, not because you won the battle, but because the cross acted as a sledgehammer. And it knocks out your enemies and it knocks out the things that would have defeated you before. And I know what it is, man. I woke up this morning and was praying for you. And as I was praying for you, I couldn't help but Wonder if there's anybody in here, be honest about this. Have you ever felt like you weren't good enough? Like, man, I just, I'm not good enough for that job. Maybe it started as a young age. I couldn't make the gymnastic team. I got cut on in the sports. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't make it. I'm just never good enough. And then now that you're an adult, you're trying to keep up. I wish I could get that job, but I'm not good enough. Or maybe you got the job and you still don't feel qualified enough. 
You ever been there? But what I love is even though you might feel like you're not good enough here on earth, you are more than a conqueror in heaven. You are good enough. You know how good you are? That God wants you. That God loves you. In fact, that's exactly how we ended our time. He says, he says, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. You know what's so amazing about God's love? Is that he loves people that don't love him. I know you feel like you woke, you know, you got, you came out the the womb with a pacifier loving Jesus. Now you didn't. We we all were enemies to him. We we all were far from him. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 will say it this way. We were all once far off but have been brought near by the blood. By, By nature, you were an enemy of God, but he loved you so much. He didn't wait for you to get it together. He said, I'm gonna love them while they are yet sinners. Christ died for you. I know some of you are like, Pastor, I hear that every week. There's somebody else here that needs to hear that God loves you. I know, I know daddy abandoned you and you feel, you know, fatherlessness. So you don't even understand what the love of a father would feel like. But let me promise you, even if your father was in your life, he pales into comparison to God's love. As much as I love my boys, I could never love them the way God loves them. You know why? Because God loves them so much that he sent Jesus to die for them. The same thing with you. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Real talk. I woke up this morning and I was praying because I realized that there are some people that come every single week that don't actually feel like they're secure in the kingdom. Sometimes it's easy to feel like you got one foot in and one foot out. You've been shaky on your faith. You've been pacing at the gate. That ticket ain't confirmed and you don't know if you're going to make it. Listen, that's a horrible place to live. And you don't have to live there. Here's the beauty in the gospel. We make it so deep and hard. Jesus can switch those tickets today. Bring that thing to the altar. Bring that thing to the gate. And slap that daggone standby pass and get you a confirmed ticket. How do I do that? It's the question. By believing in the work of Jesus Christ, not earning it. I love the song. You can't earn it. Song went so far as to say you don't deserve it. None of us in this room made it into heaven by a privileged position. We all are kneeling, saying thank you, Jesus, for the work that you've done. And so I don't know who you are, but I got up real early this morning and prayed for you. I lost sleep because I I know I knew that you would be in this room. Some of you, that's it's that person, you know, you you think I'm talking to you. A whole sermon, you're like, oh, is he talking? How does he know my business? I don't, but Jesus does. Here's what I know. He wants you to stop trying to earn what has freely been given to you. He wants you to stop trying to run like you can actually make it. You might get close you still will fail because God is not looking for good. He's looking for perfect. And you get perfection through belief in Jesus. I don't know who it is. Listen, altar calls don't save you, but I simply want to acknowledge who that person is because I got up so early to pray for you. I just want to touch and agree today. Who is that person that feels either two things? Number one, like you know that you want to switch that ticket today. And the second person, 
Who is it that knows that you've been confirmed, however, you've been living life straddling the fence? You've had one foot in and one foot out and nobody knows. I'm not talking church attendance. I'm talking actual submitting your life to the Lord. Who, who are those people that are here today that I prayed for this morning? Can you do me a favor? Can you just raise your hand if that's you? I see those hands. Thank you for your boldness. We ain't got all day. Thank you for just jumping right up. There's more. There's more of us that are playing church, playing with religion. God is like, no, 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 no. I, I don't, I didn't, I didn't die for you to play. It's in a playground. This is heaven. Who, who is it the person that has been wrestling with this idea that your security has been sealed by Jesus? see those hands. Can y'all do me a favor? We don't have a lot of time, and I know we don't have a lot of room. Those on the front row, if you could just kind of move your legs back, and those of you who raise your hand, can you just come up to the altar, please, or come up to this area? Again, this doesn't save you. Altar calls don't save you. This is acknowledgement. Come up, please, come up. Feels broken right now. Who is that person? Let's be praying right now.